0: We are uh, continuing our study in the churches in Revelation, so if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, please take it and turn it to Revelation chapter 2. If you do not have a Bible, we would love to give you one as a gift, so if you don't have a Bible and you want one, just raise your hand and somebody will bring you one, okay? Um, Revelation chapter 2. As we established last week, the Holy Spirit gave these words to seven literal churches, that were in Western Turkey, what's now Western Turkey, uh, known then as Asia Minor. And these words were given as a a commendation uh, in most cases and a warning in almost every case um, during the end of the first century to these churches, which stand uh, not only as a parallel to the the church era from 90 A.D. when John wrote this up until now, uh, but also uh, stand as an application for us in 2017 about uh, how the church can take on different characteristics based on the spiritual life of its members and based on uh, its mission to reach people for Christ. So um, these are especially relevant because as we go through church history, as we go from the apostolic age up until right now, um, two of these churches, the last two we'll look at, Philadelphia and Laodicea, are still symbolically active. And they're very disparate in terms of the types of churches and the, the desire for the Lord or the lack of desire for the Lord uh, as we'll look at that. So, so all of these churches stand as an assessment, an assessment of where we are spiritually, personally, and an assessment of where we are as a church that represents Jesus Christ. And as we, as Harbor Rock Tabernacle, stand for the Lord as we study the Word of God, as we pray, as we worship as we witness outside of these walls um, and in this neighborhood that we're in. It's very important that we represent Christ well. So these are an evaluation point. And I want to encourage you throughout this series uh, for the next six weeks, take a lot of notes, ask a lot of questions, interact with the text, uh, because they're not only an evaluation for us as a church, but for us individually. Now, last week, if you were here or if you weren't listening to the message online, Revelation 2, 1 to 7, we looked at the church in Ephesus. And 30 years after Paul had written the book that we have in our Bible, the book of Ephesians, 30 years after that, after he had exhorted them to live in in Christ's redemption, to walk worthy of their faith, to put off the old, put on the new, 30 years after that, he says, you've lost your first love. And we talked last week about the passionless church, the church that has not um, continued in its love for the Lord that has become dull and apathetic and indifferent. Um, and we talked about some of the parallels between uh, that time and this time, how in many ways uh, the American church has tried to, to program passion, to try to incite that through uh, visual and through uh, experiential means, trying to kind of stir up uh, people to to respond to the Lord rather than just living in love for the lord. So that was the first church we looked at and and that really I, I want to kind of give you a foundational important foundational uh, point that comes out of that. And that is that every time a relationship begins to lose some level of love and some level of passion and some level of desire. Anytime that happens, that relationship is going to be tested very directly. And it's important to see and it's really kind of become a new thought to me as I've studied through these books and and studied through these churches is that there really is a domino effect that's taking place as the Spirit talks to these churches that one kind of leads into another. They don't just stand separately and the order is not accidental. Ephesus came first because one of the things that happens to us is we can lose that first love. And once we lose that first love, then the relationship gets tested. When you were... Dating in high school—you remember that? That was a long time ago for me. But when you're dating in high school, and then suddenly someone in the relationship gets a little weary of the relationship, or they start flirting with somebody else, and somebody else looks a little bit cuter, and they decide that they're going to go after that relationship—that's where the integrity of the relationship starts to fall apart. That's where what is immature and kind of temporary begins to get evaluated: is do I want to continue on in this relationship? Or, or am I kind of done with it? When a couple gets married, when they start to go through the the first days and the first months and the first years of marriage, when a crisis hits, financial or or health, or there's a job loss, or maybe there's tension with the in-laws, or something that, that takes place, and, and the luster of the honeymoon kind of falls away. And then you hit what they call the, the seven-year itch. I don't know if that's real or not, but... But after six or seven years, you kind of think, wow, I'm really, this is really permanent. Like, I'm really with this person. And then you start to, start to, uh, to have stresses that take place. And, and if someone becomes unfaithful, then the marriage really hits the crucible. Then the marriage is tested. Is it going to last or is it going to fall apart? And really the only things that can, can sustain the marriage at that point are faith in Christ and a renewed love for each other. So anytime there's a a problem in a relationship, anytime there's a loss of passion, a loss of love, that relationship's about to be tested. The same thing holds true spiritually. The Lord never stops loving us, right? How many know that's true? God never fails us, never forsakes us, even the person today that curses his name up and down. He still loves them. Christ still died for them, and he will still redeem them if they'll trust Christ. So God's love never stops, it never fails. But in our relationship with him as children, after we get saved and there's that initial passion and joy and we're ready to read the Bible cover to cover and pray 24 hours a day, and then what happens? We start to settle into that, right? Start to settle into our relationship. And if we're not intentionally growing and intentionally strengthening our faith, and intentionally putting off sin. And intentionally spending time in his presence. And intentionally serving him on all the other things we know that will, that will be beneficial for our spiritual maturity. If we're not doing those things, the passion and the love for him will start to waver. And the enemy sees that. The enemy knows that's taking place because he's looking for any weakness. You know, the devil this week is looking for any weakness in your life. He's looking for any opening. He's looking for any foothold where he can get in and cause some damage. And he will tempt you, and he'll bring people that want you to sin, and he'll try to exploit your weaknesses. He'll do anything he can because he wants to diminish our love for the Lord, and he wants to diminish the things that will build our love for the Lord. And then on top of that, he tests our faith and our maturity and our resolve by bringing in, cultural opposition, opposition to what the Bible teaches, opposition to our conviction, opposition to what we stand for. Now, this second church here in Revelation, starting in verse 8, chapter 2, is a church that experienced that firsthand. It was the church in Smyrna, and we're calling the church in Smyrna the tested church. Ephesus was the passionless church. Smyrna is the church that is tested. Look at what they were going through here in verse 2. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Now, Smyrna was a beautiful, very comfortable city in Western Asia Minor. But if you were a disciple of Jesus Christ, it was not a good place to live. Smyrna was very wealthy. There was a lot of um, shopping there. There was a lot of people that were trading things. The city had made uh, very significant advances in medicine and in science. So there was a strong intellectual community there. And Smyrna was known for developing myrrh. Actually, the name of the city comes from the word myrrh. Now, we know Myrrh was something that was given to Jesus when he was on the cross. We also know that myrrh was given to Jesus by the wise men. Remember? Gold, frankincense, and tell me, myrrh. So myrrh was a medicinal plant, and it was used especially when somebody died to help preserve the body so it didn't decay quickly. Myrrh was a very precious commodity, and the area around Smyrna was known for the myrrh. Now, Smyrna was also an important political city. It was free, so there were no Roman garrisons there. So there was a, a freedom to develop law, to develop culture, to develop religious beliefs in some ways. I'll explain that in a moment. But, but it was free. It was open to trade. It was beautiful. It had a luxurious harbor. Everything about Smyrna was nice. The streets were laid out. They had a, a beautiful um, city development plan, so their streets were very long and very wide. And at the end of one of the streets, called the Golden Road, was a huge statue of Zeus, the Greek god. So Smyrna was a place you wanted to live. It was like, almost like a resort town in some ways. It was, a, it was a nice place to live. There was a lot of wealth. There was a lot of material uh, prosperity. But for a Christian, it was a bad place to live. Because the, the, the issue for Christians that were there was that it was considered the center of emperor worship. Smyrna was the center of emperor worship. There was a huge temple there to Tiberius Caesar, who was the emperor of the of Roman Empire. And one of the issues in the Roman Empire was that there were so many religions and so many gods that, that instead of choosing one that everybody was supposed to follow, uh, the Roman Empire established a system where once a year, all citizens of the Roman Empire had to pay homage to Caesar, and had to offer a sacrifice of incense. Once a year, you had to go to a temple, you had to to bow down to Caesar, you had to burn incense, and you had to declare your loyalty to Caesar. That was the way they controlled the citizens. And when you did that, once a year, they would give you a certificate, literal certificate, that said you did this, that the Roman Empire recognizes that you have come and done this. They said, as long as you do that, once a year, you can worship anybody, anything that you want. You're completely free outside of this, but you have to do this. It kind of smacks of Daniel when uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were told, you have to bow to Nebuchadnezzar, except in Babylon, you didn't have freedom to worship anything you want. In Smyrna, you did. So all the Christians there had to do was to burn a little incense once a year, to pledge their allegiance to Caesar, even if they didn't mean it. They, they could be completely um, uh, false in that, in that statement. They didn't have to mean it. They just had to do it. They had to go through the motions. And if they did that, life would be great and they could worship Jesus freely. But here's the thing about the Smyrna Christians look back at the text. They weren't willing to do that. So they suffered immensely for their faith, they suffered immensely for their countercultural stance. You know, even the little, littlest bit of compromise is still compromise, right? Even the little bit of give. We're going to look at that over the next two weeks. We're going to look at two churches that really compromised in different ways, but it just starts with a little giving in. Just a little willingness to negotiate, just a little willingness to concede our convictions to become socially accepted. And that was the pressure for the Christians in Smyrna. The pressure was just give in a little bit. Just, just go through the motions. Just make the sacrifice to Caesar. Just pledge your allegiance, and, and then everything will be fine. But see, once we get spiritually indifferent, we're tempted to compromise. And once we compromise, things start to go downhill. And the Christians in Smyrna said, we're not going to do that. But then there was a second layer of problem. The second layer of problem, and you can see this in the text when he refers to the Jews, is there were Old Testament Jews. There was a large population of Old Testament Jews that were there who absolutely hated the Christians. They thought they were... They were apostates because they worshiped Jesus. They thought they were wrong because they wouldn't follow Old Testament law. So so they're getting it from one side from the Roman Empire. They're getting it from another side from the Old Testament Jews that are living in Smyrna. So the Christians in Smyrna are living in a a place where there is hostility. There's a spiritually uh, pluralistic culture that's demanding consent and, and compliance to something they don't believe in. And now they're struggling, and Jesus tells them that. I know you're struggling. I know you're in crisis because of what you're doing. There are a lot of parallels to where we are now, because this is where we're headed as a culture in the United States, if we're not already there. Spiritually hostile, uh, religiously pluralistic, where there's a desire for consent and compliance to a false religion. So we need to understand very clearly this morning the message that comes to the believers in Smyrna. Because knowing the opposition they were facing and knowing that the enemy was going to use that and keep pushing that to try to get them to a place where they were actually going to be persecuted for their faith. Look at what the Spirit says to them. He strengthens them and he encourages them to be fearless and to be steadfast And to be nonconformist. Fearless and steadfast and nonconformist. You know, Smyrna is one of only two churches out of the seven that doesn't get any negative words. The Spirit only speaks positively to them. And we need to see that because as they're being tested, His encouragement, his warning, his challenge, his exhortation. That's probably the best word. His exhortation, which means, come on, you can do this. We're going to encourage you. We're going to strengthen you. We're going to build you up. Come on, keep moving forward. So the exhortation of the Lord to the church in Smyrna is, don't get complacent. Don't get soft like the Ephesians. Instead, be resolute and be unyielding. Now, the situation in this city highlights the fact that there are really two types of testing we face as believers. There are two types of testing we're going to face as believers. The first is the constant assault of the enemy. We are under constant assault. Every moment, every day, it may not seem obvious. It may seem like things are going great and time is kind of relaxed and there are no problems. But we need to understand that every moment of every day, we are under spiritual assault. And the enemy is trying to undermine our faith, and he's trying to discourage any maturation, and he's trying to damage our witness. So recognize today, recognize when you wake up in the morning, this is why God gives us new mercy every day, is that we are going to be under spiritual assault from the enemy. That's testing one. Testing two is the consistent training of the Lord to strip away everything of the old, To push us on to maturity, to strengthen our faith, and to make us effective in ministry. Now, I am convinced with all of my heart that the American church right now is being definitively tested in both of those ways. Because I think the enemy is convinced that he has a new and really enduring opening, listen now, to permanently damage the church of Jesus Christ especially here in America. I believe the enemy really is convinced of that. And I think that's why he has escalated his effort to legislate anything that contradicts the Bible. Now, at the same time, I believe God has been very, very gracious to give the church an opening. I believe God has given us a new opportunity to be spiritually revived and to turn this cultural tide around and to impact the world for Christ in a fresh way. And there's no question that the effectiveness of our ministry and the impact of our witness as individuals and as a church is totally dependent on how we respond to these tests. As we view this, as we understand it, and as we respond to it, how the enemy's attacking, what the enemy's trying to do, knowing our enemy, knowing his tactics, knowing his plans, and then trusting in the Lord to deliver us, I believe we can make a fresh impact on our culture for Christ because I think God's given us that opportunity. Now, that being said, we live in far easier conditions than what we read here in chapter 2. What Smyrna was facing, what the church there was facing, is far worse than what we're facing. Look at how he describes four things. Write these down, four things that they were going through. First of all, they were dealing with tribulation. The word literally means pressure. There was a form of torture that the Romans used during that time where they would lay a prisoner down and they would put a large boulder above them. And slowly they would drop the boulder onto that person's chest until it put so much pressure on their internal organs that they would die. That's the meaning of the word here. You're under pressure. You're under tribulation. There is the weight of spiritual opposition and taking a stand for the Lord in an antagonistic culture. And this is culminated in the requirement that you're supposed to worship Caesar once a year. But church, you're taking a stand. So you're facing the pressure of dealing with that. Second problem you've got is poverty. You're being denied good jobs. You're being denied your place in culture because of your spiritual convictions. You're being ostracized by the Jews that are there. So your lifestyle is poor. You're you're not living the way people around you in this very wealthy city are living. And I know that's difficult for you and I know it's making you stand out. You're not feeling sorry for yourself because you can't buy stuff. You're feeling sorry for, you're feeling bad because you stand out in the culture even more. And then the third problem they have is they're being slandered. The Jews are blaspheming them. They're making accusations about them. They're publicly undermining their convictions. The same Jews who had no problem paying homage to Caesar, who said gladly, yeah, we'll, we'll burn the sacrifice once a year. That's fine. Now, that can be really discouraging, can it? When you're living by the Word of God, and you're, you're trying to be sanctified in your daily life, and you're, you're telling other people about Jesus, but you're getting criticized by people some of whom say they're Christians and and are willing to compromise the word of God and live in a way that's contrary to what God's word says, but they're criticizing you for actually walking with the Lord. That's discouraging. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I have, and it, it depresses you. So they're facing pressure from Rome. They're living in poverty because they have no place in the culture. They're getting slandered by the Jews that are around them, but then the Spirit says there's one more problem. You're about to suffer more. Well, I'm sure that's exactly what they wanted to hear. The devil's ramping it up. He's about to put you through persecution and, and, and prison and possibly even death. I'm sure they would have rather heard, you know what? I got your back. I'm going to take care of you. You're not going to have any problems. I'm going to squash your enemies and eliminate the problem. But that's not how saw the Lord works, is it? The Lord doesn't work to completely eliminate our problems. And there are times where we go through those difficulties and we kind of wonder, Lord, why aren't you pulling me out? You ever been through that time? You ever been through a time where you're going, you're praying and you're struggling and you're going, Lord, I just need some relief. I need to know why you're not pulling me out. And, and you pray and you know God's there and you have faith and you know God works. You've read all the scripture. But, but it doesn't seem like you're getting pulled out. It is at those times there we start to maybe question the Lord's goodness. And we may start to waver a little bit and say, well, because I'm struggling, maybe I'll just seek some alternatives at this point. We see it throughout Scripture. Elijah sitting in the cave in the wilderness. Lord, I'm done. I can't do it anymore. I'm out of energy. I got no more Jezebel's after me. I can't, I can't do it, Lord. Just, just take me to heaven. I just want to go to heaven. Timothy, writing to Paul with tears, falling on the papyrus as he writes them. I can't do it anymore. These Ephesians in this church, they're killing me. The same church, right, that was going to lose its passion. Timothy writes to Paul and says, I can't do it anymore. I've got to quit the ministry. I'm done. I'm, I'm so weary. I'm so finished with all of it. Don't you think the Christians in Smyrna felt that a little bit? Pressed, pressured, slandered, opposed, not thriving, eking out day to day, paycheck to paycheck, trying to find some place in the culture, being ridiculed, being shunned, being opposed. And every time they try to take a stand for the Lord, they get hit in another way. Listen, the words of the Holy Spirit here really come back to the text now. The words of the Holy Spirit become very Applicable not only to them, but to us. If you're in difficulty right now, you're struggling, I just described you, these words are for you. And if you're not in difficulty right now, trust me, it's coming. It's coming. And here, the Holy Spirit of God, Jesus Himself, who is the Spirit, gives us three statements. Two are direct in the text. And another one is inferred. And as we look at the ways that we're going to live and influence a very confused country that we live in spiritually. I've never in 52 years seen our country more confused. More at odds. More divided. More struggling. I pray that these statements that the Holy Spirit gives us will stir us up and give us strength. And give us the impetus to move forward. So here's what he says. First of all, verse 8. Jesus says, I'm the first and the last who was dead and has come to life. Now why is that so powerful? It's powerful for us as Christians. Because in making that statement to his church, Jesus is saying, I can relate to everything you go through. He has experienced opposition. He has experienced persecution on a level we can't fathom, holding our sins on the cross. But Hebrews says he is our high priest who is acquainted and can sympathize with our weakness because he was tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. And just as Jesus can identify with us, just as God is not indifferent, some, some uh, distracted, uh, far off being that, that has no relationship to our life. And we're just kind of pawns in his little chess game. Listen, that's not how it works. He infinitely and intimately cares about us. He created us in his image. He sent his son to die for us and to rise again. And his son went through everything we are going through Now he says, not only do I understand what you're going through, but I have provided everything you need according to my riches and glory. Which not only means I'll give you what you need and what's positive and what's desirable. It also means that when you need strength, when you need comfort, when you need security, when you need help, when you need endurance, I got you. I got you. I've got everything you need to get through this. And he said, in fact, I'm going to take it a step further When people persecute you, slander you, say things about you or mean to you, criticize you for your faith, mock you because you're trying to live a holy life, tell you what, here's what you are. You're blessed. We usually define blessed as, well, I got a new house and I got a new car and there was a check that came in the mail. I'm so blessed. That's how the American church defines blessed and it's completely wrong. Blessed are you when people mock you persecute you, say all things uh, that are evil against you because of me, because you love me, because you stand for me. That's the time you're most blessed because now you understand me. And you know what? I'll be sufficient for you. I'll take care of you. I'll help you. That's why when you look back at the text, he says you're in poverty. (laughs) Come on, you're not poverty. You're rich. You're rich. How many know the riches of Christ are far better than the riches of earth? Oh, knowing the Lord, living in a sufficiency, the strength and power of his spirit, the promises that he makes, being able to pray and be heard and be answered. Come on, Thursday night, let's fill this room. We're going to call on the Lord. And you know what God's going to do? He's going to answer because that's what he does. We can always find strength. In the fact that Jesus goes through, went through what we go through, times 10 trillion trillion. And he did it without sin. And he says, when you trust in me, I will help you and I will sustain you. The benefit of suffering is that we understand and love and appreciate Jesus more. If you're suffering right now, you're struggling, this is a time of crisis. And if it's not, again, it's coming. But during those times, we're able to understand and love and appreciate Jesus more for what he did to save us and then the fact that he helps us and sustains us. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, this treasure that we've been given, it's in earthen vessels. So the surpassing greatness of the power of God will be from Him and not of us. So when we're afflicted and we're crushed, remember the pressure of the boulder, remember that picture, when we're afflicted, we're not crushed. When we're perplexed, when we're confused, we don't despair. When we're persecuted, we're not forsaken. When we're struck down, we're not destroyed. Why? Because we always carry in our body the dying of Jesus. We always understand This is what Jesus went through for me. And now his power, Paul says, is manifested in us. Oh, praise the Lord for that. Second encouragement, verse 10. He says, don't fear. First word is, I'm the first and last. I've been through all of it. I know what you're going through. I got you. Second encouragement, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Drop down but be faithful unto death. Now, I think this is hard for us to understand in Wisconsin in 2017 because we're not being persecuted for our faith. Not like the Christians in China and Saudi Arabia in Iraq and in South Sudan. People that every day wake up knowing if they won't get to the end of the day alive because they're Christians. Like Smyrna, they're facing pressure, and they're facing poverty, and they're facing literal persecution. We don't face that yet. But if and when we do, look at what the Lord's message is to us. He says, be fearless and be faithful. Because Christ is the Lord of all, because he never leaves us or forsakes us, We have nothing to fear. Be anxious for nothing is not a suggestion. It's a way of life. And maybe that's not where you are this morning. Maybe that's not what you're feeling. Maybe fear is still gripping you. Maybe you're struggling with anxiety. Maybe you just can't shake the feeling that that you're not going to get through this. Let me encourage you that when Christ is your Lord, he gives you supernatural power through his spirit. Power we don't understand, power we can't manufacture, power we can't conjure up just by desire. This is power that God gives us that is beyond earth. It's beyond our understanding. Don't get weirded out now while you're talking crazy. No, it's supernatural power from heaven. Just accept it and appreciate it. Supernatural power that God gives us, and he is ready. Listen now, there's the best thing we can hear this morning. He is ready to unleash that into your life. When we surrender ourselves to him and we say, Lord, I'm yours. Whatever will be, will be. I'm completely at your mercy because I know you're a merciful God. God says, I'm going to unleash some power into your life that you can't understand. And all you're going to want to do is thank me and praise me. See, suffering stirs us. It stirs us to be fearless. It stirs us not to just look at the circumstances because God has power for us. It stirs us to not be tangible, but to be supernatural. And when we're stirred to be fearless, then we're stirred to be faithful because God's power is going to help us and sustain us. This is what keeps us faithful. This is what keeps us firm for the Lord is that power to live by conviction and to walk in holiness and absolutely to be counterculture. James says, don't despise it. Don't, don't be now angry at the Lord when you're going through a time of difficulty because that's designed to mature you and complete you so you really know what it's to be like, Christ. Why? Because growth comes out of adversity. And often the Lord will allow us to endure hardship to strengthen our faith in Him And to stir us to be even more resolute about living out our convictions. I know every time, as I look back at my life, every time the Lord's allowed me to go through a trial, it was designed to strengthen my faith. So, he says, I know what you're going through, verse 8. He says, verse 10, don't fear, be faithful. And then the third encouragement is here. And this one's not directly in the text, but I believe it's absolutely there. Out of this, there is a new opportunity to make an impact before everything changes. I was reading a novel the other night, just a fictional novel. But it was talking about the conditions in Haiti and in Cuba. My nephew Stephen just got back the other day from working with Samaritan's Purse in Iraq near Mosul, which is one of the worst places on earth. Samaritan's Purse built a hospital right on the outside of Mosul for people that are fleeing because the closest hospital was 200 miles away. Can you imagine such a thing? I gripe when I've got to go to Kenosha. So Samaritan's Purse, fantastic organization. Praise the Lord for Samaritan's Purse. Samaritan's Purse went into one of the worst parts of the world, and they built a hospital right on the outskirts of Mosul so the people that are fleeing from the hostilities and the terrorism, have a place to go instead of having to walk 200 miles and die on the road. My nephew just went there. I don't live in a place like that, do you? I don't have that kind of problem today. And it hit me as I was driving in my very nice automobile, which is 18 years old and has cracked seats, but it runs and it keeps me warm. I was thinking, we have it so easy. I haven't been raised in a slum. I haven't been raised in a place that is Muslim. I haven't raised in a place that's hostile to Christians to the point of death. What would I do if I had been? Would I still love Jesus the way I do if that had been what I had known? Would I still take a stand like the Christians in Smyrna if that's what I had grown up with? We get worked up about people protesting and marching through the streets. We get frustrated that there's not sanctioned prayer in schools. Listen, you want to pray in school? Pray in school. I did it all throughout college. Just pray. You don't have to have the state tell you, yes, you can pray. But I saw an article this week that said, you know what? The, 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 there is an open and declared war now. They're not even hiding it anymore. There's an open and declared war now in our culture against biblical conviction and values. The left is going to go much farther left. They're not going center. They're going this way. The right, I don't know what the right's doing. Who cares? But make no mistake, this is not political. It's spiritual. Just look at the defining issues. Look at what people are marching about. They're not, they're not protesting tax cuts. They're dressing up like female body parts. And they're shouting vulgar and demand, vulgar things and demanding that, that the things that the Bible clearly describes as sinful behavior not only must be mainstream, but they must be legislated. And anyone who disagrees with that literally should be beaten in the United States. But even at that that absolutely pales in comparison to what's happening in Syria, what's happening in North Korea, what's happening in Pakistan. So here's the question. We're done. While we have it easy, what are we as Christians in America doing about it? Very seriously. Are, are we hiding in the shadows? Are we conforming, tacitly agreeing because we don't want to be non-PC. We don't want to make any waves. We don't want to ruffle any feathers. We don't want anybody protesting us. So we just kind of softly yielding, softly giving in, continuing to just kind of just kind of walk with one foot in both worlds. Or are we standing firm and are we defending God's word as right? You see, suffering, suffering gives us the opportunity to serve the Lord. I don't know where our country's headed. I read the Bible. I read the rest of this book. I know what the Bible says about it. I don't see the United States in Revelation. So, honestly, your guess is as good as mine. But right now, you and I are not living under any real persecution. And here's what I believe strongly with all my heart. I believe God for a time, has shown fresh mercy on this country. And I think he has stunned the advance of radical opposition to his word and to biblical values because he is saying to his church, I'm giving you one more chance. I'm giving you one more chance. You've seen what's going on. Be alert. Listen to what the Spirit says to you. Have ears now. Come on. This is where it's headed. The church has become passionless and indifferent, and it's not making an impact in culture. We're not growing. Culture is not more spiritual because of what the church has done to conform to it, it's become less spiritual. So, church, hear this. You have an opportunity. I've given you fresh mercy. And the window's not going to be open for long. And if you think a Supreme Court justice is going to solve that, you're sadly mistaken. It is incumbent on you, Christian, it is incumbent on you, church, to walk through the door of opportunity I have given you to reach people for Christ and to disciple them. And to do that, you're going to have to be more holy, you're going to have to be more on fire for Christ, and you're going to have to be more bold about your beliefs. Because culture, while you're doing that, is going to become more hostile, more tactical, more hysterical, more opposed, and working harder and harder every day to declare war on what you're doing. So church, we have an opportunity. We have an opportunity. I believe we're in the days of Smyrna, not to mention the days of Noah. What will be our response? In the next couple months, we're going to be developing some new tactical initiatives as a church and how we can better reach our city and our neighborhood and our area and the world through missions. But it's going to start with us. It's going to start with us not falling into the trap that Ephesus fell into of just kind of being dull and indifferent. And like everybody else, when we take a stand, as Smyrna did, God says, you may not feel the reward right now, but I have a crown of life waiting for you. You Remember the last song we sang? We're going to get to heaven, and I can't understand this. God's going to walk up and put a crown on our head. I don't deserve any crown. You know what we're going to do? We're going to say, thank you, Lord these are yours. They're they're all laid at your feet because you're the Lord. You saved us. You redeemed us. You pulled us out. You adopted us. You promised us. You helped us. You sustained us. I don't deserve a crown. The crown's yours. And we're just going to praise the Lord.